0: It's time to rise. The founders, investors, technologists, changing the face of Asia, intersect on the official Rise podcast. With your host, Casey Lau. Welcome to a new episode of the Rise Cast, the official podcast of the Rise Conference. My name is Casey Lau, and I co-host the event, with web summit founder patty cosgrave now in its third year this july in hong kong this podcast is a way for you to learn more about the people who will be speaking at rise and hopefully give you more of a deep dive into who they are and what they do as well as a snapshot of what's happening in asia's startup innovation scene this episode i welcome fritz demopolis of queen's road capital fritz is one of the stars of the startup world in Asia, having already co-founded and exited one of the most successful travel sites in China called Chunar.com. Started way back in the prehistoric days of 2005. Flash forward 12 years and in Silicon Valley fashion, he's paying it forward with Queens Road Capital and mentoring and investing in startups from China and Southeast Asia. Originally from Anaheim, California, Fritz has been a great connector for startups, and in this episode, you will learn that he wants you to pitch him if you catch him in the washroom at RISE. So here we go, Fritz Demopoulos of Queens Road Capital on the RISE cast. Hello, we're back again with another uh, podcast today. I'm sitting down with Fritz here at Garage Society in Hong Kong. Hi, Fritz. Hey, Casey. How's it going? Everything's going well. Now, the first time I met you was back in 2011, and you were a speaker at one of my events called Startup Saturday. Do you remember that event?
1: I do. We were talking about Jack Ma and Alibaba. I very much remember that conversation, right?
0: Yeah, so I want to get your insight now. It's five, six, almost seven years later. Where do you see, you know, what you saw that day and that environment here in Hong Kong to today? Where do you think the startup community is going? I mean, obviously, it's growing big. Back then, we were talking about the beginning, but now it's like everybody's doing a startup. So what do you see from your perspective?
1: I mean, within Hong Kong, we're seeing more and more startups, which is great. And um, everyone describes you as the godfather of the startup scene in Mm -hmm. Hong Kong, and that's certainly true. In fact, uh, just yesterday, someone said, oh, you're meeting Casey, the godfather. I said, the godfather of what? <laughs> no, I thought that was funny, no, because I've known you for so long. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's great. You know, Hong Kong was a little bit behind the curve um, in terms of, you know, its startup, eco- de- the development of its startup ecosystem. And I think partly that was because... There had so many other great opportunities for people in Hong Kong. um, um, Hong Kong talents are very fungible. They can go anywhere in the world. And even within Hong Kong, they can work at all the big banks and trading companies and things like that. And so I think the younger generations in Hong Kong, for a long time, never felt compelled to put their hat in the ring and set up a business. But I think that's been changing. Um, Some of the traditional advantages that Hong Kong had um, are slowly, Leaking away, I guess you could say, yeah. and that's um, meant that uh, more and more young people um, have to consider maybe a life of startups as opposed to just working in a big corporate.
0: You started QNR 2005. This is a very unique time of technology's lifespan, right? You were after dot .com and before this kind of new wave with the iPhone and things like that. Do you think that was an advantage to what you were doing? Do you think that is it a disadvantage now because it's so crowded for startups starting today?
1: I think it was a, a great advantage. Uh, when you start a business in an environment where people are a little bit apathetic, um, I, th- I, th- I think that allows us and it gives us the time to make mistakes to try to fine tune our business model. I mean, frankly, most startups, they either pivot or their, their, their business models evolve so much that we don't even know what those businesses are like um, a a few years from now. Um, And it's the same thing with us. When we started our business, it it went through a a certain evolution. And I think we never would have had the breathing space to do that had it been too competitive. Um, Now that's, and and we were also very unique in some ways when we set up our business, which was um, 2005, as you mentioned, we were operating in the travel industry. And a lot of people felt in 2005, there isn't any room for yeah. um, travel startups. Yeah. It was game over. Yeah. You had the large established conglomerates. You had Expedia in the States, and you had trip in China. But what happened after 10 years is the biggest players in the market are companies like Booking.com, which is owned by the Priceline Group, which is multiples as large as Expedia. You have companies like Chunar that almost um, took trip out before Trip took Chunar out. Yeah. And... We saw over that 10-year period all sorts of interesting startups and companies actually scale. And in some ways, we were just very, very fortunate that um, a, a lot of people thought travel was game over. And then broadly speaking, a lot of people thought, well, you know, maybe this isn't the time to set up a business in, in any category. And so we just had all sorts of great advantages. And in fact, if, if somebody thinks your idea is stupid, it's probably a good time to set up a business. Yes. So
0: let's talk a little bit about the travel space, because that's your, kind of your background. I know you don't only invest in travel startups, but what do you see as some innovations that are happening now in the marketplace, not just in Asia, but around the world?
1: I think we're seeing a few big trends in the travel space. Um, we're seeing the emergence of the third pillar of travel, which is local tours and activities. Mm-hmm. So the first pillar um, was flights, people buying tickets online. The second pillar were hotels led by Booking.com and, to some extent, Expedia and Ctrip. And then we have the third pillar, um, which is booking tours to the Louvre, um, jumping the queue at the Eiffel Tower, um, taking a tour of Dragon's Back here in Hong Kong, or a dim sum food tour on a Saturday morning. Uh, these are all local activities and tours. And this is, you could say, the new frontier in the online travel space. And we're seeing all sorts of interesting companies involved in the space. I'm here in Hong Kong. We have a great company called Kluk in Taiwan, KK Day, which is also a fantastic company. We have Get Your Guide in Europe, which is probably the largest player in the world. Um, And and in full disclosure, I'm an investor in that company. Um, We have Viator in the States, which was acquired by TripAdvisor a few years ago. So we have a lot of different companies operating in the space. All these companies together are a little bit smaller than the typical flight and hotel players. But it's certainly the third pillar and we're super excited about it. Um, A second trend is, I guess you could describe it as alternative accommodation. That's all the Airbnb and stuff. Um, And we're seeing all sorts of interesting startups, um, not just Airbnb. I mean, obviously HomeAway, which is actually a very established company, um, is probably the second largest player. And we have a number of interesting meta-search players such as HollyDoo in Germany, um, and tripping.com in San Francisco. And, and again, in full disclosure, I'm an investor in tripping. Um, and, and so we're seeing all sorts of interesting activities, uh, all, all sorts of interesting investment activity and, and entrepreneurship within this alternative accommodation space. And what's shocking is Airbnb's market cap is already larger than the largest hotel chains. Yeah. And that's just a testament to, on, on one hand, The financial market's rewarding innovation, their growth, and also the fact that many consumers, not all, but many consumers like the product.
0: Now, we just recently, Airbnb's committed like a billion dollars into China. Seeing that Uber just left, pouring tons of money into the country, why do you think Airbnb's doing this?
1: I think every board requires their senior management to have a China strategy. Clearly, just pouring money into a market isn't going to work. I, th- I, th- I think we'd all agree on that. Um, in fact, especially a place like China where there's no shortage of capital. In fact, for a company like Airbnb to succeed, they're going to, have cap- they're going to have to need capital, which they have. Some local market expertise, that's a bit questionable. Maybe they have some local people they hired, who knows. They're going to have to have some sort of unique know-how, maybe some unique tech which unfortunately in this world, everything's open source. So I'm not sure, except for the AI guys and the machine learning guys, I don't think anyone has any unique tech to be honest. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in an environment where your local competitors have access to the same tools and technologies and approaches that you do, they have access to capital and your local competitors have deep domain expertise and local market expertise, it can be very, very tricky, I think, for a company like Airbnb to, be successful in China. Now, having said that, there's different parts of the travel market um, when it relates to China. There's something called Chinese who are traveling abroad. There are foreigners who want to travel to China. And then there's Chinese people who want to travel domestically. I think targeting Chinese consumers who are interested in traveling abroad and maybe open to the alternative accommodation offered by Airbnb, I think they got a decent shot at Um, obtaining a reasonable market share. I think, on the other hand, competing domestically for domestic demand vis-a-vis domestic supply, I mean, I think that's going to be very, very tricky. And um, the likelihood of success, I think, would be very small.
0: Yeah, I I think it's definitely more for people coming inbound into China that want to use a globally recognized brand so that means everybody is so excited about China I have a lot of people coming moving in to either Hong Kong or going to ask me for connections in China so I'm seeing there's a big influx and so people want to know what's going on and I think I would trust Airbnb rather than you know a local uh, Chinese company that maybe has better inventory but it's not in English
1: it's true that. The foreigners who are traveling to China, um, there might be a higher degree of trust with Airbnb. It's true. Of course, um, you have to compete with C Trip, which is also a NASDAQ listed company yeah. and extremely well run. Um, Tuja, which again is a unicorn in its own right. And companies like C Trip and Home Away, as well as Sequoia and, and Lightspeed, have all invested in that company. And so they uh, can. I assume, do some branding as well. And again, you know, Justin, who's the CEO, I mean, he's an exceptional entrepreneur and has really, you know, built an amazing franchise there. And then you have all, you have companies like Starwood and Booking.com, which, by the way, is little known, but they also aggregate um, alternative accommodation. And so as a consumer, there are many more choices than maybe we initially think. Um, And yes, maybe there's a little bit of brand value that Airbnb has, And that will help in conversion rates a little bit. It'll help them generate some demand, but I'm not sure that's the killer saber that they need to take over the market. So, what do
0: you think that in the Chinese versions of Airbnb, they're taking Chinese people out to other parts of the world? You have experience in selling tickets, air tickets to people around the world from China. What do? What is like a? I know you can't obviously just say this is the typical Chinese consumer, but are they getting more? you know, looking for this kind of alternative accommodation? Are they really package tour people? You know, how do they travel?
1: Uh, The vast majority of the market is still package. Okay. Um, Most, I wouldn't say most, but a large group of um, consumers are first-time travelers. Okay. And you can imagine they're traveling on package. It's first time. This may be one of their largest expenditures. So they're probably going to see six countries in three days yeah, I've heard of that. uh, um, and that's fine I mean I mean that's what we expect from a first-time traveler and they have requirements and they've saved their money and we should provide a decent level of service mm-hmm. um, those customers are their needs are being well met by companies like C trip um, to um, too new um, things like that um, now having said that there's also a large group of we call them experienced travelers they've traveled many times and they're looking for something a bit more interesting to do. Their interests are fragmenting. It's not. I have to go to Paris. Yeah. I have to go to London. Uh, these consumers are very happy to go to Siena, maybe pick some grapes, make some wine, whatever it is. You know, something more yeah. curated and, and, and interesting. And um, you know, those consumers, um, you know, they have a different um, price point. By the way, in yeah. fact, they have more money. Yeah. Um, and those consumers, I think, may be interested in alternative accommodation. Frankly, I think um, some of um, Airbnb's local competitors have some advantages because um, because of the trust factor, as, as you mentioned. But Airbnb, on the other hand, has some massive advantages because they have a much larger supply base. Yeah, yeah. And they also have a lot more volume. And if you have more volume against your supply base, you can just negotiate better deals you can insist that your supply base offer a higher level of service. Um, there's a lot of things you can do if once you have global scale. And so I think um, whilst it's still a small part of the market, um, it's growing, that experienced traveler uh, with fragmenting interests mm-hmm. um, is very, very interested to try all sorts of unique um, experiences, which is offered by companies like Airbnb. It's also offered by Get Your Guide. It's offered by um, Be My Guest in Singapore, Kluk, KK Day, um, and in a range of smaller companies as well.
0: It's funny we're talking about Airbnb, because you remember at that start of Saturday, we had Brian Chesky there. He was there talking about it, giving his, ho- his whole story of how he sold the cereal to uh, fund his um, startup. And now look at them today. It's so crazy. All right, so you mentioned there were three pillars. What is the fourth pillar? Do you think that's coming up? Like, if you had to guess, or take a look in the crystal
1: ball. I think the fourth pillar of travel Mm -hmm. are going to be um, is going going to be around um, affinity travel. So very unique experiences. It could be um, education travel, for example. People traveling for more for education purposes. Um, It could be medical. Um, medical tourism is a big deal. Yeah. Um, people going to Thailand to get a few things snipped, yeah. and then on top of that, um, you know, visit a few Buddhas at, at yeah. the same time, and yeah. maybe have some good Thai food. Yeah. Um, uh, we're seeing um, shopping tourism, yeah. which you know the Chinese obviously have been doing forever. I mean, yeah. they're some of the greatest shoppers in the world. Um, but maybe um, some, but uh, maybe some other emerging consumer groups, which have reasonable levels of saving, may also. Start doing that as well. So I, I I think that's the fourth pillar. It's the fourth pillar is a little bit more tricky. It, it's a little bit more fragmented. Um, but but I think the right companies that can offer exceptional service, that can be transparent, that can build an amazing brand, um, can appeal to um, those smaller niches. And keep in mind, um, a niche globally is a massive business. Exactly.
0: I agree. All right. Let's let's go back and look at Shunar. Um, Because I I find it so interesting because you're like the first guy in the water over there. What if you I mean, and you look and you study the market today, you know what's going on. If you were to like suggest a a couple of ideas for a say an American or European startup that wanted to come over to China and kind of set up shop, what would be you know a few ideas that you would give them to think about before coming over?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, There's a few things I think. US or European startups need to be thinking about. Number one, senior management commitment. Okay. What I mean by that is you can't just appoint a China GM and say, all right, we've, oh, 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 we can wash our hands of this. <laughs> okay. It's gonna be uh, the CEO, his or her co-founders, the CTO, head of business development, will all have to, on a regular basis, be visiting China, attending conferences, speaking engagements, meeting potential clients or distribution partners, potential employees um on a very very regular basis what I, I think is surprising is um obviously by some measures china is the world's largest economy and of course number two but it, it could be number one depending on how you define it and um surprisingly you have ceos that will have been to france more times than china or Belgium more times than China, or Germany more times than China, which is shocking because you should be in the second most important market, um, I suppose, on a pro rata basis, um, as much as you are in some of these other markets. And so, the first thing I think, first and foremost, is um, uh, the senior management of these companies have to, on a very, very regular basis, um, be building relationships, understanding the market, collecting data points, um, and to really really understand um, how things work in china and then through that process start developing plans and strategies Um, secondly there is no one single key to the magic kingdom or or i guess the chinese kingdom Um, i'm from anaheim so sometimes we say magic kingdom um and um, which is why it's so fundamental that the senior team the entire senior team spend time in china on, on various levels and um, in, in, in various formats, because only by con- collecting a range of data points and then con- connecting the dots can a company figure out their China strategy, their China plan, which may or may not be the same as their peers. Um, and, and the good thing is, like uh, President uh, Deng Xiaoping once said, you know black cat white cat it doesn't really matter as long as it catches the mouse and it's it's the same thing with doing business in China you know it it, it doesn't matter um, or th- there is there is no one single color of, of cats there is no one single um, single approach to take um, and I, 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 th- I think that's uh, very important for uh, startups to realize and then thirdly as I mentioned earlier you have to really be true to yourself and understand what are unique advantages um, um, as as, um, as a company from the Valley or Europe think about um, entering the Chinese market, is that they have better access to capital, highly unlikely. Better access to technology, very, very unlikely, to be honest, um, unless it's some of those very specialized fields that, that we talked about earlier. Um, local market expertise, unlikely. Yes. Specialist management know-how. Mm-hmm possible possible um some companies are managed um slightly differently but at the same time you know uh, jack ma and pony ma have shown us that some of the larger chinese conglomerates are also innovators innovators in how they manage their people too
0: is it true that at chunar you held um management meetings in chinese even though you don't speak it
1: we did. We held uh, meetings both in English and in Chinese. Um, initially, we started um, all our senior management meetings in, in English, but then we realized, you know, this is a Chinese company, and and it's better that my staff speak in Chinese so that the richness of ideas and feedback and opinions can come out. Um, and in fact, one of our key cultural traits for the company was give us feedback. No bullshit. Sorry for my French. Um, and, and, and that meant having our staff be uninhibited and speaking up the organization and speak laterally and, and down. And, and one way to do that was to make sure people were comfortable in, in, in the right language. It, it also meant that you know, I missed out on a few things, but that's fine. I mean, I had an exceptional co-founder as well who, who was running the business with me and we were able to, I, I think, you know, build a fantastic business through this approach.
0: Do you think that having a Chinese co-founder is important to enter into China?
1: I think having local market expertise is important, and you only get that with a, a local person. Um, and secondly, we need to align our interests with the best talent available. And, and and the ultimate way to align your interests is to have co-founders, to be honest, who are who, who are local. It isn't a requirement, but... If you want to align your interests, you want local expertise, you want to make sure that everyone is going to feel the pain equally and be crazy, m- maniacally aggressive, then um, it's, it's probably better to um, have some co-founders.
0: So you were able to do um, a $300-plus million deal with Baidu. What do you think about how that deal was done at that time? Because nowadays, I'm wondering, would that deal have been done, or would they have just copied it and tried to build it themselves, or was there some secret sauce to what you were offering and did the deal with them about?
1: Um, As a general rule, of thumb, the first thing Chinese companies want to do, I I guess anywhere in the world, I don't know if it's just China, um, is they want to copy you. Uh, They don't respect what you've done. They just want to copy you. And no exception, Baidu tried to copy us. Um, And then after... They copy you and fail, oh. they realize, well, maybe we should figure out a partnership which is totally in our favor. Yeah. And so then the <laughs> next thing that they do is they try to just craft some sort of unique partnership which is totally one sided. And then that doesn't work, of course. Yeah. Um, and then after that, they say, oh, you know what? Maybe we'll invest or buy you at a super low price. Yeah. And then that doesn't work. <laughs> and then at the fourth stage, They recognize they can't copy you, and they recognize that they can't just get a great deal from you, so they have to pay the market rate. Mm -hmm. And so there's a cycle um, that, to be honest, every company goes through. Um, And so sometimes we have to be patient, and we have to let people go through their decision cycle, this long-term cycle. Um, Because, I mean, frankly, if you go to any company in the Valley, or in Europe, anywhere in the world, China, there's gonna be some engineer in the back of the room that says, you know what, I can do that. Of course, because that's what they get paid to do, is to say that they can do that, and then sit down in a room and try to cobble together something that really doesn't work.
0: We, we see that sh- on the show Silicon Valley. I don't know if you've seen that HBO show, but that was like that's like the motto in that series.
1: And, you know, I haven't seen the show, but of course, you know, uh, uh, you know, that wouldn't surprise me. Um, and... It, it, and so that's what we're up against. Um, and so, you know, we had a great relationship with Baidu. We had talked to them for a long time. We had talked to some of their competitors as well and some of the other players in the market. Mm-hmm. And, and so we did our business development. Um, and and it's true, all, all the large players tried to copy us. But then after a while, they realized, oh, there's something more to this business than you know than meets the eye. Um, and, you know, that's one lesson too, obviously, is the, the I mean, we as consumers see only one part of a business, but, but underlying that business are a range of processes and scale and yeah. tech yeah. and people and a bunch of other things. And, and, and nobody sees that and you know they didn't see that as well, hence the, um, hence the engineering team at Baidu probably said, probably, I don't know, but probably said, oh yeah, we can copy that. Yeah. And then once they failed miserably, we just laughed and, and waited for phase two and then phase three and finally phase four. Oh.
0: So we see that in the US now, right? Like Facebook wanted to buy Snapchat. They couldn't buy it now. Instagram and Facebook have Snapchat features in there because they just built it so big. Do you see that as a new trend in China because that's one thing about the US market I see is different than Asia. Is there are so many big companies uh, tech companies that acquire other companies and that's how the whole system works. Are the BAT companies in China doing this as often? Because, I mean, I, I know you, I've heard this story because to me you're like one of the first Western people that have done this in China, but I guess this must happen all the time in China already, just acquiring other tech companies to make them stronger, or do they just copy and forget about it?
1: Yeah. Um, a number of years ago, there was a lot more copying. But today, uh, some of these large conglomerates um, you know, they recognize that they uh, they recognize something called opportunity cost. Sure, they can devote their engineering resource to copying one company, but maybe it's better to just invest in them or acquire them, um, and then they can focus on what's really important. And I think um, I think I think 10 Cent is is an amazing example of that where you know, th- their core engineering teams and their core operations teams are, are clearly focused on the WeChat platform. Um, and then all their business development investment is focused on ancillary businesses that can support that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not necessary and, um, you know, to, to copy. And, and I think more and more um, Chinese companies have come to that realization. Um, I suspect that because these companies are so large, we don't read about the flurry of M&A activity um, as much as we would in the West, but as I understand it, uh, there is a lot of activity, um, and because um, many of those deals are made at a lower threshold that they don't have to be disclosed to the SEC, um, um, I I I think there's you know sometimes no reason to, you know, to make that disclosure. To be honest, um, probably one counter countervailing trend is you know, the celebrity CEO culture, and usually CEOs want to tell all their friends and that, hey, I sold my company. Yeah. Look how much of a genius I am. Yeah. Um, and um, But, um, you know, that trend is probably smaller than just the great desire to, let's just get a bunch of deals done. Um, let's just be quiet about it. Um, I mean, as I understand it, companies like Google, I mean, I. I Correct me if I'm wrong, but they're probably buying a company a week, maybe a couple companies yep. a week, very consistently. It's a machine, very consistent process, and I think the large conglomerates in China are, are doing the same. It's just they have no need uh, for the hype engine that uh, you know may exist in um, you know Palo Alto.
0: So like Sequoia and Matrix, they have offices in China doing deals all the time. Are they looking to expand their portfolio in China because they want to get on board with the next big thing? Or are they looking for how globalization, they can bring those Chinese companies back to the West or vice versa?
1: Yeah, that's my sense is uh, the big giants. Um, I mean, obviously um, Sequoia, China and and Matrix are, you know, they have a strong affiliation with uh, the mothership. Um, but, but, but these are separate funds with separate LPs, separate GPs. Um, however, there is some crossover, and there is, and there is quite a bit of sharing. Um, and I think um, companies like Sequoia China, sure, they're investing in companies, and they're encouraging those CEOs, hey, you guys should go global. Um, you know, you have some great tech. You have some great execution ability. Why not um, try your hand in some other markets? Why not inc- double your addressable market? And and we're seeing that more and more. Um, and um, I think I, I think at the same time, I mean, obviously, in in the Valley, we're seeing a lot of these companies. Again, I mean, every board is in, is encouraging, you know, the teams to think um, think about global on day one, um, think about expanding. Um, I, I think um, from the point of view of a Silicon Valley-based tech firm that's doing reasonably well. Um, for the first five to 10 years, you probably probably make more money from Belgium than you would from China. Mm. Um, But for the next 50 years, you'll definitely make significantly more money out of China. Um, Of course, the challenge is, you know we have opportunity costs you have to you you, you have to make trade-offs you, you, you have to set different product and investment priorities and business development priorities and, and and frankly it's probably easier to you know fly to Brussels and to try to do a deal than it is to you know fly to Shanghai especially given that in China we have lots of capital tons of entrepreneurs and and in some ways there's probably some I don't want to say some cultural DNA advantages where in in, in China everyone wants to be the boss. In fact, the number one goal for um, most people is, quote-unquote, to be the boss. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the number two goal, luckily for Chunar, was, you know, to travel. (laughs) So so that's great. Um, um, And number three was to buy a car. Um, And and so... um,
0: That's why the second-hand uh, car industry now, startup car, is doing so well in China.
1: Hey, it's true. You know, for years, China was the biggest car market in the world, mostly new cars. But once you get a bunch of new cars, obviously, a bunch of used cars get on the market, too.
0: So what do you think about Chinese companies' uh, um, interest in the West? You know, I haven't seen too many Chinese startups that are able to expand out. Um, if you think about like companies like Musical.ly and OnePlus and these kind of things that are doing well, they're not necessarily Chinese companies. And then there's the Huawei's and the, and the WeChat, for instance. Everybody loves WeChat, but I don't know anybody who uses it outside of China, necessarily, that doesn't have some sort of Chinese connection.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, I think on one hand, the skills and capabilities required to succeed in China may not be as applicable in other markets. Mm-hmm. Um, um, secondly, um, other markets are much more open. So you're competing with Google. Like Google's not blocked, and I, I think I think besides Malaysia and Angola, you know Google's not blocked, right? Um, pretty, or maybe Cuba, I don't know. Um, and it, it, so you have well-organized, fierce competitors um, in all these other markets, um, and 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 in some ways. Um, you know, China has developed its own ecosystem partly because of those cultural DNA advantages and capital and other things. And and I, I think of a small extent, I, I would say, I mean, a, a very small extent was, was also the fact that uh, some of these smaller companies were able to survive, um, you know, the onslaught of the, the, the Western players until they themselves became giants. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about what you're doing today because you're no longer really with Chunar. You're doing Queen's Road Capital, and you're deploying um, investment into startups in Southeast Asia. So you learned a lot about China, but you're going to focus on, I guess, which would be the next tons of people getting online would be Southeast Asia. We have Indonesia, the size of the U.S., but still a lagging behind in infrastructure. What do you see um, in the Southeast Asia market right now in terms of technology and innovation?
1: So, Casey, um, just a clarification, uh, we invest in China and Southeast Asia, so we do both, Um, and, and of course, there's a reason for doing both. Um, Because we're so deeply entrenched into the Chinese ecosystem, we think that... um, when we talk to companies in Southeast Asia, we can help them access either Chinese resources, whether it's engineering or financial resources, partnerships, and, and possible market expansion. And then vice versa, companies we talk to in China, we can help them connect with, engage with, and identify unique opportunities in Southeast Asia. Um, but, but to answer your question, I mean, we're very, very bullish in Southeast Asia. Um, yeah, some markets have reasonable savings rates um, very favorable demographics, i.e. very young, um, growing literacy rates, um, and to be honest, a bunch of young people that want to do cool and interesting things. And you know, those are just perfect opportunities um, for entrepreneurs and for us as investors to support those entrepreneurs. Um, having said that, yes, um, these countries are a little bit poorer. Um, yes, they're going fast, but they're poorer. Mm-hmm. I mean, mal- Um, The Philippines and Indonesia, both countries, uh, grew at three or four times um, as fast as the United States did. And yes, if that happens over a number of years, they're going to be like China. Um, um, Who knows if that'll happen? But certainly there is um, fast growth um, and a nice runway of growth. Um, But we have to accept the fact that the ARPU or or, or the revenue per customer is going to be a little bit lower than uh, some of the richer markets like the U.S. Um, But we're meeting all sorts of interesting entrepreneurs, a lot of young, ambitious people who think and genuinely believe that their generation will do better than their parents' generation, just like in China. Um, And there's not many places in the world like that. Um, I I think in the States, people don't think that way.
0: So what kind of uh, technology companies are you seeing? Like when I go down there, I see actual physically fixing problems that are out there, right? Like credit cards are not, are not super used, so they have new kinds of mobile payment apps, right? Um, even uh, one of the biggest sites in, I think, Indonesia is like a Craigslist kind of thing, right? There's a lot of trading of stuff like that. So the basic things are still not there, but do you see anything like jumping up that you would be like, oh, this is not in the States or this is not in China yet?
1: Casey, venture investors have never been known for their creativity <laughs> and um, Although as an entrepreneur, I felt I was extremely creative. As a venture investor, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, like my peers, I suppose. Um, but, so one of our A or anti-creative strategies is something called the time machine strategy. We look at China, which is an amazing reference point, by the way, for emerging markets, not the States. And we try to figure out what was successful 10, 15 years ago. And we try to look for those opportunities in Southeast Asia today. It's just the time machine strategy. So what worked in China? New types of payment platforms 15 years ago. It wasn't mobile, but there were new types of payment platforms. Um, when I was working at NetEase, um, we, we we created our own payment platform through convenient shops in order to in, ensure that our customers could buy those prepaid cards to start playing our games. And as you know, I mean, NetEase today is one of the internet giants, right? They're, I mean, they're a unicorn times 30. Um, Secondly, mobile and online games. Digital entertainment is one of the first categories that will grow, um, that will take off, that will resonate with consumers. And I think in all those markets, absolutely. Thirdly, like you pointed out, um, Tokopedia, which SoftBank invested $100 million, um, is an amazing company by an amazing entrepreneur. And yeah, it's kind of like Craigslist. Of course, they also have the benefit of the time machine strategy, and so when they think about Craigslist, they also think about what Jack Ma did 10, 15 years ago. And and of course, Masa Son at SoftBank also saw that vision, too. Um, obviously, he invested in, in, in early in Alibaba as well, and and, 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 and Tokopedia is, is following that playbook as well. And so we're all following the time machine strategy, more or less, um, and the companies that have the insight and the experience um, garnered from um, many years in mainland China I, I, I think have some advantages and you know, we, we think we have some of those advantages.
0: So seeing that kind of stuff using the time machine um, methodology uh, what uh, are you not seeing there right now what do you think are opportunities for startups this is one thing I like to ask um, investors because I see a lot of people in the, say, the US and Europe creating clones of other things that already exist so there's like 15 Groupon type sites there's 15 people trying to do different payments or more But in Southeast Asia, there's zero. So how about you? When you look at that, is there anything you see there are big gaps that are opportunities for startups who maybe want to relocate to Southeast Asia?
1: Sure, yeah. I think there are tons of opportunities um, as consumers have um, more money and saving rates continue to be high. And surprisingly, you you mentioned that um, credit card penetration is low. It's true it's low, but it's fast-growing. And secondly large swathes swaths of the um, population in all these markets, whether it's Vietnam, Philippines, Indonesia, are actually joining the formal economy for the first time. They're able to open bank accounts, okay. have access to small amounts of credit, and just by being part of the formal economy, you just get a bump in, 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 in consumption. Yeah. And, and what does that mean? It means um, consumers which never had a chance to buy toys or sporting equipment, um, or maybe um, automotive accessories. Now they can buy all this sort of stuff through vertical commerce opportunities. So vertical commerce, I think, will be huge. Now that could be through the marketplace model, maybe the more, uh, more vertically integrated merchant model. It's gonna be something. Um, and, and everyone will have a, a different way of tackling it. But, but the broad category of vertical commerce, I think, is just one fantastic area. Um, A second area, I think, is media, just consumer-facing media. What we've seen is in many of these markets, historically, uh, the uh, traditional media distribution channels have been controlled by the government um, and or um, oligopolistic interests, and entrepreneurs coming in with new ways of creating interesting content, whether it's news that's relevant to consumers. sports entertainment whatever it is financial information that's another no-brainer opportunity and when we look at these ecosystems today or these countries today and and we realize how uncompetitive the entrenched players are this just provides to me just fantastic opportunities Um, we see a lot in the education space so what's surprising is in most except for Vietnam um, all other markets in Southeast Asia consumer spending on education versus government spending is over 90% meaning the government doesn't spend money on education Um, Consumers do and that private consumption spent on education is providing massive opportunities for entrepreneurs to market directly to consumers to give them choice high levels of service, which they never had before and as families um, become more wealthy, and of course everyone wants what's good for their kids, mm-hmm. um, they're going to be shopping around and finding really the, the best education products. That might be K-12, it might be certification programs, it could be higher education, um, it could be tutoring, um, it, it could be uh, certification programs and all that sort of stuff. Um, so all that together is ripe for um, massive disruption of the less funded, lower service um, levels provided by the government, um, and just the fact that it, in many cases it doesn't even exist.
0: So I'm a, say I'm a founder, an entrepreneur based in Anaheim, and I want to move out to Southeast Asia. What city would I go to to take a look at opportunities and also as maybe an easier way in, and you can't say Singapore.
1: Uh, yeah, I think it would be a, a horrific mistake if anyone moved to Singapore. That's like moving to Disneyland. You might as well just stay in Anaheim, um, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. Um, yeah, you know, you, you, you have to go where the traffic is bad. You have to go where it's kind of hard to live. <laughs> Where's the traffic bad? Well, I mean, the traffic has been horrible in Beijing forever, ever since I, I, well, I've been in Beijing. I'm, a, I'm in, lucky I'm in Hong Kong now. Um, so I would think... Places like Jakarta, The traffic is horrific. Mm-hmm. The worst. Um, hopefully, we'll improve it. Um, but huge market, um, lots of ambitious people, desperate to learn. Um, I, I would say that would be one single city in the region. Um, the second place I'd be looking for, I think. I think Manila is just a great place. Um, English is one of the official languages of the Philippines. Right. Just like it is in Singapore and in Malaysia and in India, by the way, in Pakistan. I mean, there's. <laughs> I mean, and so um, for a native English speaker, that could be an interesting place. And you know, Philippines is just it's fun to be honest. It's it's it's, it's a fun place to be. Um, and so I, I think that'd be a second one. Um, I think a third uh, city uh, to consider is um, Ho Chi Minh. Okay. Um, the Vietnamese market is massive. Lots of talent. It's a little bit different than the other markets. It's a little bit harder to learn Vietnamese than it is uh, to uh, to learn Bahasa, Mm -hmm. Um, but but that can be, I I think, an interesting opportunity. Uh, What we've seen in Vietnam is lots of super smart, capable, um, you know, um, Vietnamese Americans, Mm -hmm. um, in, in in spite of their parents' wishes. Are going back to Vietnam and seeking out opportunities and coming up with interesting global ideas, um, using Viet- Vietnam as a engineering base and using California as a marketing base, um, or and plus product management base, um, and so so I think that'd be also very interesting. But but those are the three cities I think um, are worth you know checking out right now. All
0: right, awesome. So you're going to be um, at Rise in July, speaking on stage. If I'm a startup and I want to come and approach you, what's the best way to try to catch you?
1: There's a few things you can do. Um, You could send us an email. So you can send me personally an email. One of my colleagues, I have three guys who work with me. Um, Or you could just um, send a message through our website. Um, And we're very, very responsive. We think it's really important to get, if, if an entrepreneur takes the time to reach out to us, we feel obligated to. To, to, to reach out to them yeah. Um, but yeah you know we'll be um, trying to meet we, we have a goal to try to meet every company's booth which is like over 400 right. um, you know just because you know I guess fear of missing out is important yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so we want to just if, 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 if someone took the time to you know and of course um, and the money yeah. to um, set up an, an exhibition at rise and, and to hang out and meet people I mean, there must be something going on in their brain, and and we definitely want to find that out.
0: What kind of ticket size are you looking at right now?
1: Well, we do seed and A rounds, and so that's typically anywhere between 1 to 3. Okay, great.
0: And then if a founder pitches you in the washroom, is he, A, hustling you, or B, what the hell?
1: Um... (laughs) I mean, I mean, I have been pitched in the washroom. When I think about it, um, I think uh, I, I think that's fine. I mean, I've pitched people in the washroom myself when I had my companies. So. Okay, yeah, sure. Um, you know, no big deal, I suppose. Um, but I would say, um, I, I, I think in uh, I think in the current environment, um, you know, sometimes um, good manners are really appreciated. Mm-hmm. And I think we should all think about what good manners means. Of course, it means being responsive if someone sends you an email, if someone took the time to reach out to you. Yeah. Um, I, I think it also means you know, to respect if, if, if somebody has a long... If, if you're at a conference and there's a long queue of people that you're talking to, yeah. to kind of respect the, the fact that other people are in the queue, too. Yeah. Um, and you know, so I, I think just being cognizant of that. I mean, so we all appreciate a hustler. And... We'll always make time, and we'll stay an extra hour if we have to, um, as we should. Um, and I mean, I mean, keep in mind that investors, it's actually their job to find interesting opportunities. So they're going to be seeking entrepreneurs out just as much as entrepreneurs are seeking them out. And, and if that investor is not doing that, or if, they're, if, if they display a cold shoulder to an entrepreneur, well, they're not doing their job, and you know, do you really want them to be an investor in the first place?
0: Alright, great. Thank you for your time today. We'll see you at Rise.
1: Hey, I'm looking forward to it. I think you and Patty have created a great franchise and it's it's gonna be a fabulous event.
0: That was Fritz Demopoulos of Queens Road Capital on the Rise cast. I recently learned that Fritz is also a major science fiction geek that he started Melon HK, Hong Kong's first science fiction conference, inviting sci-fi offers from around the world to discuss the business of writing. So there's your in if you share a mutual love for sci-fi with Fritz. Catch Fritz at Rise just July on Center Stage along with other prominent investors like Edith Yun from 500 Startups, Hans Tung from GGV Capital, Peng Ong from Monks Hill Ventures, Anna Fang from Gen Fund, and Phil Chen from Horizon Ventures. That's it for this episode. The runway to Rise is in full swing as we start the countdown to Rise this July in Hong Kong. As usual, check out risecomp.com for all the latest updates and speaker upgrades that we're adding daily. Thanks for listening, and remember... Richard, I just got an email from the guys at Midland Oak. Apparently there is a line, and I crossed it.